Okay, if we can uh, just find them down, down this end. Um, I don't know how churches come of age, um, but I'm learning that um, it's not always related to its size. It's definitely linked to its maturity and its identity. Maturity is about being established and resourceful. There's no point in having a church that's flighty and you can't do anything, you have no resources. Um, it's about its identity, which is to do with who we are and where we're going. And Beacon definitely hasn't come of age yet, but, but we're on the way. We're on the way uh, to be in the church that God has uh, called us to be. And it's amazing how things have come out today, which are very much part of us, but we, if you like, we didn't plan them uh, to come out that way. Um, so, I, I, you know, really grateful for those of you that are particularly visiting us and those of you that come every week. We're in the middle of a series in the book of Genesis. And uh, I suppose I just decided that we weren't going to change that um, for our celebration Sunday. Um, and we're sort of, last week we looked at Genesis 2 and we looked at male and female and how God had a created order of things in terms of he created Adam at first and gave him primary responsibility. Uh, he created uh, Eve or the woman as an Ezra, the Bible says, which is to be an essential counterpart, a helper. Uh, that word Ezra, I was reminded, um, is actually used to describe God as our helper in a number of other passages in the Bible. And we talked about the, the married relationship of male and female mirrors that relationship of the Trinity with the, with the father and the son, the son submitting to the father, the, the wife submitting to her, her husband, equal yet different. Um, and I said that this week we would be looking a little bit about at the, 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 I suppose, the distortion of that. And, and we will, but to be honest, we're not focusing on that because when I came to Genesis 3, other, other things seemed to come up um, that I've just felt it's right uh, to go with. So... And then next week, we're looking at the final part of the, the male and female thing and probably looking at restoration and some practical outworkings of, of that. So today, we're reading from Genesis chapter 3. Uh, I'm going to skip through the whole uh, chapter. I'll do it quickly. It should come up on our, on, our, on our screen. Now, the snake was more crafty than any of the wild animals the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, did God really say you must not eat from any tree in the garden? The woman said to the snake, we may, we may eat fruit from the trees in the garden, but God did say you must not eat, tr eat fruit from the tree that is in the middle of the garden and you must not touch it or you will die. You will certainly not die, the snake said to the woman. For God knows that when you eat from it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. When the woman saw that the fruit of the tree was, look, was good for food and pleasing to the eye and also desirable for gaining wisdom, she took some and ate it. She also gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate it. Then the eyes of both of them were opened and they realised that they were naked. So they sewed fig leaves together and made coverings for themselves. Then the man and his wife heard the sound of the Lord God as he was walking in the garden in the cool of the day, and they hid from the Lord God among the trees of the garden. 
But the Lord God called to the man, Where are you? He answered, I heard you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked, so I hid. And he said, Who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten from the tree from which I commanded you not to eat? The man said, The woman you put here with me, she gave me some fruit from the tree and I ate it. Then the Lord God said to the woman, What is this you have done? The woman said, The snake deceived me and I ate it and I ate. So the Lord God said to the snake, Because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and all wild animals. You will crawl on your belly and you will eat dust all the days of your life. And I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and hers. He will crush your head and you will strike his heel. To the woman, he said, I will make your pains in childbearing very severe. With painful labour, you will give birth to children. Your desire will be for your husband and he will rule over you. To Adam he said, Because you listened to your wife and ate fruit from the tree about which I commanded you, you must not eat from it. Cursed is the ground because of you. Through painful toil you will eat food from it all the days of your life. It will produce thorns and thistles for you and you will eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your brow you will eat food until you return to the ground since from it you were taken. For dust you are, and to dust you will return. Adam named his wife Eve, because she had become the mother of all living. The Lord God made garments of skin for Adam and his wife and clothed them. And the Lord God said, The man has now become like one of us, knowing good and evil. He must not be allowed to reach out his hand and take also from the tree of life and eat and live forever. So the Lord God banished him from the garden of Eden to work the ground from which he had been taken. After he drove the man out, he placed on the east side of the garden of Eden cherubim and a flaming sword flashing back and forth to guard the way to the tree of life. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word and we pray continually, week by week, that you will instruct us through it, that you will grow us and change us and transform us by it. In Jesus' name, amen. amen. I really just want to make a couple of observations on this uh, passage. I think the first thing to say, just I suppose just to clear it up, is when God says to Adam, uh, when God says the man has become like one of us, knowing good and evil, he's not saying that Adam has become God, because, because Adam isn't God. God created the world and, and um, he created light and darkness. Adam, Adam didn't become able to do those things. Yeah? There's an element where in his awareness he becomes more like God, but he doesn't become like powerful like God. We're not, you know, we're not like God. We don't sit up there and, and compete with him in any sort of way. I just, I just wanted to say that before we think, well, how does he become like God? He doesn't, in that sense, become like God. But I want to make three observations on this passage. Uh, the first one is going to be the pattern of sin. The second one, the consequences of sin. And the third one, signs of hope. So the pattern of sin, really simple. It's not the outward appearance that counts. You see, sin hasn't changed. 
Yeah, from, from the days of Adam and Eve uh, to now, and you read this story, and you, know, you might think, oh, it's mythology or it's fantasy, but actually it describes us. It describes a lot about the way we operate. And so there are just a couple of things that we can see from this passage, which we know to be true even today, thousands of years later. We know these things to be true. The first is this, coveting. You see, one of the things that Eve was doing was coveting. And that, and that, if you like, the, the serpent, uh, and, and, and in so many commentaries it talks about the snake, the serpent, being a sort of, uh, behind that was Satan, that, that Satan understood that she was susceptible to coveting. And coveting simply meant this, that she would desire things that weren't hers. She would desire more. Yeah? Although, you, we don't know how big Eden was, but let's just say, you know, be, be a bit silly, let's say Eden had a million trees all of which were good for food and for stuff, but all, all of which were there. And there's one tree. There's only one tree that she's been told, or that Adam and Eve have been told, you don't eat from that tree. Yeah? Now, you know, you know what it's like, because if you've got children, you know this, if you've been a child, you know this, that when somebody says, don't walk on the grass, what do you, you want to walk on the grass. Yeah? And some of us, when we're really rebellious and we go to Windsor Castle, and there's a big sign, there's a big grass, they say, don't walk on it, you walk on it. Yeah? Yeah, nobody tells you know, you but he says, don't walk on the ground. Yeah, yeah, come on. That's what we do. It's human. Yeah, there's something in us that's susceptible to things. So they're told, look, you know, um, you can have all these trees. I've made them all for you. I'm here with you, but just don't eat that tree. Yeah. And what the, ser the serpent does in a very, very subtle way, but does the same thing, he causes her to covet to cover, to, to be like God. Oh, yeah, I, yeah, I want to be like God. Yeah? She's thinking, I want to be like God. And if that eating, eating from that tree is going to help me to be like God, then I'll eat from the tree. The irony is, of it is, she was already like God, created in his image, given primary responsibility in the earth. And yet, at this point, the fact that there were a million other trees was almost irrelevant. There was run, one tree. And so she coveted that one Tree. We also know coveting becomes one of the Ten Commandments. Why? Because it's massive. It's a massive thing in us that we cover which we don't, that which we don't have. We desire things that we don't need. We long for things that, that other people have. And we see it all through Scripture. Yeah? The pattern of sin has not changed. Coveting was there at the very beginning. Coveting is still here now. Secondly, pride. You see, pride leads to disobedience. Pride leads to disobedience. Although the woman, she, she doesn't repeat exactly the prohibition that God had made. Yeah? She adds this bit, oh, he says we mustn't even touch it. God doesn't say that. God just says don't eat from the, from the, um, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. She adds, although she understands it, yeah, she knew what God had asked her to do. She knew the consequences of it. Pride means that she still goes ahead and does it. Yeah? So sometimes we covet things that we don't need and we don't want and we don't, we don't have. And the other thing we do is pride causes us to not do what we should do. Somebody says, you know, you, you shouldn't do that. Well, you don't tell me what to do. I can do that if I want. Yeah? Pride often rises up. It was pride that caused her to listen to the serpent, not to God, and to then reject God and to take what she shouldn't. It was pride. 
I mean, the truth is, when her pride meant that she reversed the created, the created order. The created order was that, was that man and woman would have dominion over the earth and subdue it. That was the created order. That's what God said. And now we're in a situation where a snake, a snake questions what God had said and she listens. So suddenly we're not listening to God anymore. We're listening to the very beings that we are designed to subdue and to rule. We're listening to the animals. That's what happens in this uh, particular situation. And it's pride. It's I, I can be more. Not do I just want more. I can be more. I'm, I'm more than I think I am. You see, disobedience is not just a problem for children and animals. Yeah? Sometimes we can think that. And sometimes I can think that. Yeah? I can sometimes think that disobedience is a problem for children and animals. Animals, are, sometimes they're easy to train, but sometimes it's quite difficult to get animals to do, to do things. Disobedience is a problem for all of us because the root of disobedience is pride. You don't tell me what to do. Now, I can tell me what to do. And disobedience, which comes from pride, is in the heart. Yeah? Sometimes I don't outwardly rebel at all, but inwardly I have rebelled. Inwardly I have said no. Outwardly, I might even do what you've asked me to do, but inwardly, I've said no. And right at the beginning, that's what happens. Pride wells up. She doesn't just covet something that she can't have or that she shouldn't have. She then disobeys God in doing something she shouldn't do. She was given a responsibility, or they were given a responsibility, and they didn't recognise the importance of trust and all those types of things, and pride leads to the breakdown of trust. It leads to betraying what God had asked them to do. The pattern of sin doesn't change. We still, we still have the same problems. Thirdly, lust. Lust. Lust leads to unhealthy pursuits. Lust leads us to unhealthy pursuits. You, clearly, the, the world God had made was a good world. It was a good creation. He describes it as good. Yeah, it, you know, God, it says that God looked and saw that what he'd created was good. But that's very different to Eve's response and Adam and Eve's response to the tree. It says, it says, what does it say? When the woman saw that the fruit of the tree was good for food and pleasing to the eye. Pleasing to the eye. If covetousness is something that's in my heart, that I, that I desire things that I, I can't have, lust is about what I see. I desire what I see. Regardless of whether or not I'm meant to have it, I should have it, it's right to have it, I desire it. And lust is powerful. Yeah? Because it led Adam and Eve to disobey God directly. It's powerful. It's not just a, a minor thing. Now, obviously, what's good to the eye is good. When Adam first saw Eve, he exclaims, bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh. Now, when you get married, you, you know, and you turn and you see your bride coming down the aisle, you don't necessarily shout that, bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh. And people would think, is he a bit strange here, this guy? Yeah? But you might go, wow. Yeah? And you're not going, wow, because, um, because you've looked around and said, look at all these people at my wedding. No, you've gone, wow, because of your bride. Yeah? There is something about what you see that's important, yeah, that we do respond, respond to, and that's, that's a right thing. But lust takes it further. Yeah? Lust takes what's pleasing to the eye, and it makes me go, I want to have that. 
that thing I see, it looks so good, I want to have that. So often things that look good and taste nice are like honey down the throat but gravel in the belly. They're not as good as they appear. It's not as great as you think it is. And that's exactly what was going on here. They, there was coveting, there was pride, and there was lust. These patterns of behaviour have not changed. We don't use these words all the time. Yeah? We don't go around talking about covetousness. I don't walk around and say, say I, I must stop coveting here. Pauline, stop coveting. I don't, we don't use those words, but we do these things. These are patterns of behaviour. These are things that we often live with. And they're right there at the beginning, and they're right here now with us. So the pattern of sin hasn't changed. The consequences of sin. The consequences of sin. Like I said at the beginning, it's not just about what you see. It's not about what you see. The consequences of sin are these. You see, Satan, the serpent, the snake, is the father of lies, the Bible tells us. Now, it can appear when you first read this passage that he's telling the truth. No, no, no Satan told them the truth. When he said that you'll be like God, he's, he's telling them the truth. But actually, he's not really telling them the truth. He's telling them a lie. And sometimes he tells half lies because it's easier to believe a half lie than it is a full lie. Yeah? But he's not telling them the truth. What Satan said to them, he said, um, he questions, did God say you must not eat of the true? You know, he says, you certainly will not die. For God knows that when you eat from it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. Now, what happens when their eyes are opened? There's only one thing that happens when their eyes are opened. They realise that they're naked. Yeah, they realise that they're naked. At the end of chapter 2, it's quite significant. It talks about Adam and Eve were naked, but they felt no shame. There was no shame in their nakedness. In a sense, there was almost like naive innocence. You know, you know like when your children, they run around and, and they're naked. And e even when they're two, you're like, oh, no, don't do that. But actually, they're like, they feel no shame. And they go like this to you, and they want to cuddle you and all that sort of stuff when they're younger, and it's appropriate to do all those things. Yeah? So Adam and Eve were like that. They felt no shame prior to this moment. But the first thing that happens after they believe the lie of Satan, that if they take the tree, it will be great for them, the first thing that happens is they realise that they're naked. And you can just imagine the embarrassment. Oh, goodness, I didn't, hadn't realised. Adam, pass me those figs. Pass me the leaves. And they hadn't realised that they were naked. And even though they were married, there can still be this moment of embarrassment. Yeah? Oh, we hid from you, God, because, because we were naked. There was shame. Their eyes were opened and they realised they were naked. And it's really important that we realise that, that. That Satan tells lies. Yeah? He doesn't tell the truth. He tells lies. And therefore, when you think that if I do this, it will be okay, I can hide it, I can keep it, this, this sin, it will be okay, it's wrong. It's a lie. Satan lies, and he doesn't care. Remember, Satan doesn't care. He's not trying to be godly. He's not trying to lead you to godliness. He's trying to lead you away from godliness. Satan is the sort of defendant in a trial who's committed a heinous crime 
He's committed, um, he's sentenced to death, and he laughs in the judge's face. That's what Satan's like. He's not, he's not then feeling guilty. Oh, I just feel a bit bad. He doesn't feel bad. If he can destroy you, he'll destroy you. Therefore, you must understand that he tells lies. Yeah? He's a liar. And as a result of it, Adam and Eve find shame because of it. The second thing that happens for them is their suffering. There's no indication that before this moment, people suffered. But after this moment, there is suffering. Suffering enters. There was an impact on both Adam and Eve. Suffering entered the world. Creation was cursed. Pain in childbirth, painful toil in work. Suddenly pain is part of life. It wasn't there before. Well, we don't read about it before, but we read about it here. As a result of the fall, the world, the earth is cursed and pain comes. Thirdly, separation. Separation. So the consequences of sin are shame, suffering, separation. And that first separation is from God. The impact of sin on their relationship with God. Now, they hadn't even considered that. They thought they would be like God. Maybe they thought we'd be even closer to God if we eat from this tree that he told us not to eat. But actually, what it does is it separates them from God. You see, sin defiles God. It defiles his presence. It doesn't change him or distort him, but it does dishonor him. It disrespects him. But more than that, and because of that, it makes God distant. God becomes distant because of sin. He becomes separate from us. He can't abide with us because of sin. Suddenly the daily walking in the garden with God stops. Adam and Eve are banished outside of Eden. We are all born outside of Eden. And the very things that we do confirm that. It confirms that we're separate, that we're distant from God. Our only way back to God is not through our abilities. I can't fight my way back. There isn't a natural way back. So there's a separation that occurs as a consequence of sin from God. Secondly, there's a separation from one another. And this happens on many, many levels. This happens in terms of, you know, if you go to Genesis 11, it happens in terms of races and tribes, that there's a separation because of, the pri because of pride. But here, with male and female, there's a separation in terms of their relationship. The relationship between men and women becomes distorted. The order of God's creation becomes skewed. Men begin to rule and dominate women in a way where that was completely to the words of God. Completely contrary. Women at times become manipulative in a way that's completely contrary to the words of God. There is a separation. There is a messing up. There is a distortion of the relationship. And we see that, don't we? We see that everywhere. We've seen that throughout history. The consequences of sin, shame, suffering, suffering, separation. Now, sometimes it's hard for us to understand, and I don't have time to go into this, why sin had such major consequences. Why? Why does it have such major consequences? We only know that it does. Why did, why did God create us in, in a world with the potential for us to sin like that and have those consequences put on us? 
I don't have time to go in, into all of that, and there's no easy answer to that. But, but one of the answers to that, one of the ways we can just think about that is the fact that, you know, when you have children, and all of us were children at one point, when you have children, you bring children into a world of suffering. You bring children into a world where potential tragedy happens. You bring children into a world where there is oppression. You bring children into a world like that. Yeah? But you never sit there and think to yourself, oh, I wish I'd never had you. I never, I never think that. Yeah? I never think that, oh no, because it, you never think that. Even children that are born maybe with some form of disability, you don't, you don't deny them life on the basis that, oh, they can't do everything that everyone else can do. We bring children into, into that world. Why? Because, because life is precious. Yeah? For all the problems of life, it is precious. It is wonderful. It is something that we enjoy and we want others to do the same. We can't always answer the question, why did God allow it? But we know that it, did, it was allowed. And we know, hey, do you know what? I bring children into, work, into a world where there is so much uh, problems. The third thing, very quickly, from this passage, there, there are signs of hope. And this is one of the wonderful things about the Bible and the gospel, is that everywhere, if you look, there are signs of hope. It's not all about, oh, it's really difficult, oh, it's really hard. No, there are signs of hope. And there are two things, or three things, that I want to mention from this passage. The first is this, we see a sign of God's compassion. God's compassion. And that compassion is shown when God makes skins of clothing for Adam and for Eve. So remember, they have sewn some fig leaves together, probably wholly inadequate yeah, for what they wanted them for. But before God banishes them from the garden, he makes clothes for them that are suitable for when they go out. He's already beginning to cover their shame. That's really important and really helpful for us to know. God didn't just banish them in, in, in sort of temper anger, but actually he has compassion on them and he clothes them. Secondly, the saviour. It points to the saviour. So many commentators believe that that description of, of the battle between the serpent and, and uh, the offspring of the serpent and the offspring of the woman is pointing to the saviour, is pointing to Jesus. When, when it talks about, I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your offspring and hers, he will crush your head and you will strike his heel. So many believe that that's a picture of one day Jesus will come. Yes, his heel will be struck, but he will crush the head of Satan. There's hope, there's a saviour. The Bible looks to it. It's a longing to that moment of redemption, that breaking of the power of sin and death, which was only accomplished at the cross. Romans 5 alludes to it specifically. Romans 5 says this, verse 12, Therefore, just as sin entered the world through one man, and death through sin, and in this way death came to all people because all sinned, verse 15, for if the many died by the trespass of the one man, how much more did God's grace and the gift that came by the grace of the one man, Jesus Christ, overflow to the many? So there's this idea that, that death came through Adam, 
but grace and life come through Jesus. That through one man we all died, but through another man we all have life. It's wonderful news. Consequently, just as one trespass resulted in condemnation for all people, so also one righteous act resulted in justification and life for all people. For just as through the disobedience of the one man, the many were made sinners, so also through the obedience of the one man, the many will be made righteous. Where sin increased, grace increased all the more. So although we paint this picture of the fall, this separation that occurs between us and God, the suffering and, um, and the shame that comes, actually there's hope. There is hope in the gospel. And the hope of the gospel is the fact that Jesus covers the shame. Jesus takes the suffering on himself. It's not just that he leaves us. You see this, when we think about sin and the fall and suffering and that, um, we're very individualistic. We think about ourselves, we think about individuals, we think about wickedness, evil, why do you got to allow all that, people who, people who die young, abuse and all those types of things. Why did God allow all of that? And we think about it like that. But you know what, in the early days when the Israelites thought about it, the, the thing that bothered them most was not sin, wickedness and evil and suffering. To some degree, they sort of expected the world to be a bit like that. Suffering was part of it. Do you know what bothered them most? was separation. It was that they were no longer with God. The real point was what made paradise paradise was God was there. Not that the trees were nice. It was that God was present. Yeah, it's the fact that you dwelt with him, is that you walked with him. That's what made it paradise. You read about Moses. Moses says, look, don't, don't send me if you're not going to be with me. Because if you don't go with me, nothing distinguishes me from any other people on the earth. The thing that marks us out is your presence, is you. What David prays after he sins with Bathsheba, it's an interesting thing. What he, what he prays after he sins with Bathsheba, he says this. Only against you have I sinned. In our minds, we think, no, David, you committed murder and adultery and you destroyed a family. But he says, only against you have I sinned. He understands something that sometimes we don't understand. And then he says, don't cast me from your presence. Whatever else you do, God, don't cast me from your presence. That, that's the thing. That's the point. For us, sometimes, we think about the wickedness and the evil, but actually, really, really, truly, the thing that marks you out as a Christian is the presence of God in your life. It's the Holy Spirit in you. That's the thing. That's the thing that makes the difference. Nothing else makes the difference. You can have a really big Bible yeah, with gold bits on the end, and you can, you can come to church and dress in a suit and all that type of stuff. None of that makes any difference if you do not have God in your heart. Yeah? And so what happened at this moment one of the wonderful signs of hope is we go from a God who becomes distant to Adam and Eve and shuts them out to a God who wants to dwell with his people. What's the promise of God that we see, read throughout the scripture time and time again? I will be with you. I will be with you. I will be with you. Yeah? That's, that's what the cross achieved. 
You didn't achieve that. I didn't achieve that. The cross achieved the promise of presence. When Jesus went up to heaven and he, and he gives his disciples the great commission, and we all think about that in terms of evangelism, the most important part of it is his presence. I will be with you always to the very end of the age. That was the promise that the cross bought for us. The promise of his presence. The fact that he would dwell from distance to dwell it. It's interesting when you read through the scriptures that they don't look back to Eden. They don't look back to paradise. They don't go, oh, if only we could go back. They don't look back to Eden. What they do is they look to God. They look to the presence of God. They look to the promises of God. That's what we need to do. Don't look back to Eden. Don't think to yourself, oh, if only we went back to the beginning, it'd all be all right then. No. Because actually, if we were back in Eden, we would be as susceptible as Adam and Eve to do what they did. The only surefire way that you can find genuine salvation and relationship with God is through Jesus. You don't find it anywhere else. You don't find it by coming to church. You don't find it by reading your Bible. You don't even find it by praying if you're not praying that prayer. You find it by coming to him and recognising, oh, that the only thing that really matters, the only thing that really deals with sin is this, this relationship. And then we find it's interesting that God addresses Adam and Eve personally for their sin. So part of the curse was bigger than just them. But he addresses them in turn. He addresses the snake. There's no snakes here. Um, He addresses the woman and he addresses the man. What's he doing? He's indicating to us there's no hiding. For you and me as individuals, there's no hiding behind the crowd. you You don't think to yourself, well, I'm in the back row, nobody can see me. God can see you. There's no hiding in the crowd. There's no hiding behind others. God addresses you and your sin. And what is our first instant reaction, a bit like, not dissimilar to Adam and Eve, is we blame shift. That's what Adam did. That's the first thing he did. Oh no, it was the woman. The woman that you gave me. Ultimately, God, it's your fault. You gave me this. He blame shifts. She doesn't say, oh, it's the snake. The snake, he's got nowhere to go. He's there. What? Okay. He's got nowhere to go. But blame shift is one of the ways that we avoid facing our reality that, hey, we need God. It's not me. Sometimes you can blame shift in, in ways that appear very, very, um, it appears very noble. Very noble. So you might have a question about suffering. You think, well, do you know what? Till I understand suffering, I will not believe in him. So that's very noble. But it's just it's utterly wrong. Yeah? We will never answer that question on suffering. And you know what? You have to handle the question of suffering whether you're a Christian or not. It's not all about God. You have to handle it. Whether you believe in him or you don't believe in him, suffering still exists and you have to handle it. So we can blame shift. It's often a way. But he addresses them and that explains to us why Jesus died and why he died for the world, but he died for you and he died for me. Yeah? Jesus didn't just die globally. You know, Jesus is up there. This is global God who died. 
that he died, he died for you and he died for me, so that I, so, so if Eve had heard the gospel, what she would have done, he should have got on her knees, she should have said, sorry Lord, and she would have grabbed the hem of Jesus' garment and said, and said I, I believe. That's how her shame was going to be covered, that's how sin, her sin was going to be taken away. It wasn't going to be because she was able to blame shift. No, she grabs hold of Jesus. Yeah? Jesus died for the world, but he died for you. And you need to understand that. Mankind rejected him in the gardens, but the kindness of God, both to mankind and to every individual. The world is lost and separated from God, but so am I. Clearly, there remain some big and unresolved questions. Yeah, there always is. There are always hurdles. There are always hurdles to faith. To be honest, one of the biggest hurdles to faith is pride. It's on my heart. It's, you know, the, the Bible tells us that the heart is deceitful above all things. Yeah, we think we're better than we are. We think we're more right than we are. We think we're more righteous than we are. But there is no bigger question for you to ask and answer is how do you respond to the kindness of God offered in his son Jesus, dying on the cross for your sins, covering your shame, bringing you into relationship when you had been separate from God and you could do nothing about it. How do you respond to that? There's no bigger question than that. There's no bigger issue than that that you have to deal with, that I have to deal with. Romans 10 says this. And we'll finish here. If you declare with your mouth, Jesus is Lord, and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For it is with, it is with the heart, with your heart that you believe and are justified. And it is with your mouth that you profess your faith and are saved. As scripture says, anyone who believes in him will never be put to shame. Anyone who believes in him will never be put to shame. Where's Matt? Can I just have... Matt, can you... I want to give people uh, an opportunity this morning to, <coughs> to respond... To God, and you know, when you think about the fall, and when you think about sin, and it's not always a hopeful thought. You know, I remember talking to Phil last week, and he was like, "Oh, I hope there's some hope in the message when you're talking about sin and the fall." But actually, the hope is made clearer because of the fall. If you didn't have the fall, if you didn't have sin, if you didn't have suffering and wickedness, you wouldn't know how compassionate God really is. You just wouldn't know. You would just think, oh, he's, he's okay. You wouldn't realise, oh man, God is incredibly compassionate and kind and gracious. Incredibly so. Far more than you would ever believe, ever understand his grace and his compassion towards you. He takes away your shame. He's not trying to expose you and make you look stupid. He does the very opposite. He covers you. He covers you. He takes away the sins of the world and he takes away your sin. Once you were separate, now you're in relationship with him. He restores your soul. He brings you back. It's wonderful, wonderful news. 
So we're going to respond. Why don't we stand? We'll sing in a moment, but I'm just going to pray. And I, I just want to encourage you where you are, maybe just to close your eyes, just to, for a moment, just to consider him. Consider him. Don't, don't consider the dynamics of the meeting. Consider him. Don't consider, oh, you know, what's going to happen now. Just consider him. Think about him. Think about what Jesus has done. And for some of us, that's, you're just thanking him. You're just saying, thank you, God. Thank you for your grace. Thank you for your mercy. Thank you for all that you've done. Some of us, we're just grateful in our hearts. Others of us, do you know what? We're distant from him. We're Christian, but we're distant. We feel dry. We feel thirsty. We feel, you know, we feel like nothing. There's nothing in me. I don't feel warm or anything. Yeah, I love God. I come to church. But do you know what? I feel distant. I feel, I, feel, I, feel, I feel away from him. And for others of us, we, we are away from him and we've chosen to be away from him. And still others, there are people here, maybe who don't yet know him. You've never confessed with your mouth and believed in your heart. You know, you, you've never done that. You've never gone through that process that brings you to a point of being saved. Yeah? You've never done that. And, and so there are different people in different places all across this room. There's different ones of us in different places. But the Holy Spirit and God the Father can handle that. Do you know what? He, he can handle you in your place. He can handle me in my place. And so we're just going to just sing this song and I want to encourage you to respond. We, we do this a lot, but that we don't do it for fun. We do it to give you an opportunity and to give me an opportunity to engage with the living God, to get grace and help for my moment of need. And so I'm just going to invite you just, whilst we sing, just if you want to come out, um, I'll ask one or two people to come out maybe to pray but with people, but just to encourage you just to come out. It's your own response. And, and for some of you, it's just, oh God, I... I feel distant and I don't want to be distant. I want to be close. For others of you, it, it's, a, it's, a much, it's a first time response. Of, uh, I need Jesus. Or I need to come back to Jesus. So let's sing and respond. We're not going to prolong it, but we're going to do it. We're giving you the opportunity to reach out again to the Father who is in heaven and have him touch you by his spirit. So whilst we're singing, you just might want to come out and you can stand, you can kneel, you can just sit on the front. But, but your coming is, is part of your confession, actually. It's part, it's part of the confession. You, you've heard one or two people can confess in this morning what God is doing in them. If nothing else, that tells you God is here. If nothing else. It tells you, oh, God is at work here. It's not all just words. The living God is here. So let's sing together, Matt, and encourage you to come to respond to him this morning. You are